Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Welcome back for another edition. And I can continue to amaze myself with the topics there are to talk about. And I'm going to talk about something today that I've never even written a column about, which is kind of amazing. And I think I said this last podcast. <laughs> yeah, I've been writing columns for 30, 40 years. So I'm going to talk about something that's pretty common in my financial planning practice. And this is how the best laid, uh, well-designed, financial plan, security net that an elderly person or couple can put in place and how it can be sabotaged. And it's, I would say, relatively common from my experience. And my sample size is small, you know, just a few hundreds of people. But nevertheless, it's, I, I do see it a lot. So let's take a couple that has worked with a financial advisor. And the advisor that I'm suggesting that they've worked with is an advocate, which means not only do they have a fiduciary duty to put the client's interest first, they don't have a conflict of interest, which means that they're compensated in a manner where there are no commissions received. There's no other ways that they're going to be paid other than fee for, for service or here's a check. So that is the assumption here. Typically, advisors that work this way are pretty caring and, and take advocacy really seriously. And I'm also assuming that this advisor will be a financial planner, not just an investment advisor. So they do full, comprehensive financial planning. I think in almost every case that I've come across this, the client has been a, has been a long-term client of the planner, say 15 to 30, 40 years. So typically, the client is in, the, I would say, the last stage, the later stage of retirement, whatever that could be. Usually, they're well into their 80s, but it doesn't have to be. And typically, the risk is when one, we're talking a couple, when a spouse dies. So we have a survivor, a widower or widow, usually. It's a widow because uh, women tend outlive men. So a good financial advisor is going to have everything in order. Everything will be on file that's needed, powers of attorneys, wills, trusts, trustees, insurance policies. I mean, just everything financial will be on file with that advisor, which is a huge help to that surviving spouse 
because they don't have to worry about pulling together all the financial details needed in the face of the death of a spouse at a time that they're grieving. And typically they're losing a partner of that's been with them for decades. So this can really help relieve some of that pressure. That advisor will often interact with attorneys and accountants, even taking more pressure off that spouse. And depending on the capacity of of the surviving spouse, when kids have to step in, it can take a lot of pressure off of the children of having to dig around and find stuff and spend a lot of time and at a cost some usually of missing work and trying to find stuff that they really may not have an understanding of what they're looking for. So having that type of financial planner in place can just be a huge, huge help to this situation where a spouse is lost in really at any age, but especially at at an older age. So here, here is the shocking statistic. Typically, 80% of widows who have lost their spouse switch financial advisors within a year of when their spouse dies. Now, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that the spouse is always not liked? The financial advisor? Oh, I would suggest not, especially when they, they've been with them for that long and worked with them that closely. There could be something else at play. Now, for a younger couple, this could include a widow that perhaps wasn't included in the engagement. Maybe the husband and the financial advisor really communicated. She was left out of it. He doesn't have good communication skills, and she switches. That's pretty understandable. But what's the dynamic with an older couple that have been with that advisor for years? Here is what I have seen many, many times, is that mom's left. If there's kids, which typically there are, the kids step in. And they start helping out mom and start taking an interest in, well, what's going on financially. It would be pretty common that one of the kids takes over paying the bills. Now, maybe mom was paying the bills. Maybe mom was the financial savvy one of the partnership. Usually there's one spouse that's more financially in tune than the other. And stereotypically, it's often the man, but not all the time. So it kind of depends. But we typically have kids stepping in to assist mom. And that can be, of course, one. I've seen it be up to nine. So what happens? Well, oftentimes, there's a joint meeting with all the kids. And lots of questions are asked, or it can be kids 
calling in and individually gathering some information. Of course, there needs to be powers of attorney and appropriate legal documents in place where the advisor can talk to the kids. So what I find is the kids who were never part of the relationship, who had never or rarely attended a meeting with the parents and the financial advisor, are now thrust into their parents' financial world. And typically, the kids have much less wealth than their parents. Their understanding may not really be any different. And typically, not too many people are really knowledgeable of financial affairs and financial things. And there is a huge learning curve for them to get up to speed as to what the strategies have been that the parents have employed and especially with the investments, uh, where the investments are, how they're invested, and all of the various costs and fees associated with the investments. And this is where I find typically the focus really narrows to on behalf of the kids are the investments, the flow of money, how is mom going to be supported, and what are the fees that mom and dad have been paying you. So I find that the focus very quickly goes to the fee. Why? Well, if you have a financial advisor that is fee-only, fee-for-service, then the fee is expressed in dollar terms. The fee-for-service is either coming out of the checking account, usually on a quarterly basis, but it could be a monthly basis, and it is very visible, very, very seen. And I don't know how much I've talked to about it on this podcast, but there is an emotional dynamic with our brains where percentages seem to cost much less than dollars. So, for example, if mom and dad have a million dollars and let's say they're at a typical fee and commission broker, the typical fee that's being paid, and it's not necessarily seen in one place, it can be all various types of fees that are broken up, various percentages here and there. If you add them all up, it's usually 2.28%. That's the national average according to a 2017 study. But like I said, it's a half percent here, 0.25% here, 0.75% here. It's usually not super spelled out. And that's the fee, if you can find it. And it's it's often taken out of the account before there's any returns or not even very visible. As opposed, say, with a fee-for-service financial planner, the fee is expressed in dollars. And a typical fee on a million dollars to a fee-for-service planner would be about $10,000. And that $10,000, there's a check being written or some type of an invoice for $2,500 a quarter. Well, to the average brain, 2.28%, if you can find it and add it up, is a lot less expensive than $10,000. 
And a question that I often get that I got very recently is what, what are you doing for $10,000? And so the, uh, that's where the focus is. And I find that the spirit, the relationship, the, the mood of the kids, it usually gets very adversarial. Just recently, I walked into what I would call an ambush. It was a meeting with a widow and, and the kids. And I was a fairly recent widow. And I was met with just a degree of anger coming from all the kids. And pretty quickly, we got to the nut, which is, what are you doing for $10,000 a year? So... As I explain all of the services and everything that's being done, the bulk of the labor in financial planning is financial planning. Hours and hours are typically spent on a client annually, reviewing insurances, reviewing wills, reviewing taxes, doing tax projections, working with cash flow, meeting cash requests. I mean, just all of the nuances of financial planning. I figure only about a quarter to a third of the fee is really spent managing the investments, which actually makes it a pretty good deal. So typically, I can just think of four cases right off the top of my mind where this scenario unfolded. Just the, the anger coming from the kids when they see that fee going out and you need to justify yourself. So this is the bane of a fee-only financial planner is that there's a huge amount of transparency. If there wasn't so much transparency, there often isn't the resistance and the pushback because it's in percentages and it's hidden and it's buried. But when those numbers are, are seen, it's a huge deal. Now, with the with the probably just investment only advisor that would be charging 2.28%, that's $22,000 a year. But that's not how it's seen. That's not how the, the brain relates. Also to make this even a, a bit more challenging is that the kids have no attachment to the financial advisor. They probably have never even met the financial advisor. They have no idea to the relationship that's happened in the past. There may be a perfunctory, well, thanks for working with the folks for 30 or 40 years, but there's just not an understanding of what's been put in place and what that relationship has been. So, and oftentimes I find that the kids are able to plant doubts in the mind of the surviving spouse, typically the widow, that may be in various degrees of, of failing as to how they've been ripped off all these years, which is a tremendously sad. It's hurtful to watch a client be influenced by really angry kids. Now, I can't fault the kids for wanting to take care of mom. That's admirable, that they want to step in and they want to be an advocate. 
for mom. It's just sad that oftentimes there's a huge amount of blending with those very suspicious and skeptical parts to where there's not the capacity to gather facts, ask questions, and to understand what is going on. So like I said, the default is the advisor is guilty until proven innocent. And the assumption is this person's been ripping off the parents for 20, 30, 40 years. And so the focus is typically all on the money. And interesting enough, the focus can not even be so much on what the investment performance has been or anything like that. They are here to protect. The other thing that can pop up that is really, really scary and disheartening is the kids are typically the beneficiaries. And, and there can be a real conflict of interest as the kids take the money, <clears throat> take control of the money, and now are in charge of mom's well-being. And there's been many, many times I've suspected that the intentions of the kids were not quite as pure as they represent. And in fact, one time I was meeting with mom and, and kids and it there was an open mic left on. They forgot to meet themselves. And one said, "We're I'm just concerned in getting my share of the money. Oftentimes I had kids say, we need to give everything to ourselves so that mom, the mom can get free long-term health care from the government, which is called Title 19. We don't want the government to get any of the money. Well, this is super problem problematic because while it's true on Title 19, that means a person doesn't have any money, and so the government foots the bill, and this is typically in a nursing home. The funds have to have been given away or have left the estate five years or longer before care is needed, or the government will claw back those funds. Also, Title 19 is the low bar in care, the low bar in, in a standard. Oftentimes, you don't have a private room. And so, typically, parents would like the best care possible in their in their elder years rather than giving all their money away so they can get the most minimal care possible this is really disheartening when i suspect and i see this type of behavior it is bordering on elder abuse and this is a thing we have witnessed it many times and it can be extremely sensitive and difficult for an advisor to deal with, especially when this person has the power of attorney and can make all the decisions over mom. So, of course, for me as an advisor, there's a plethora of emotions as I watch this play out. I have seen really intact, well-formulated, sophisticated investment programs that are have served uh, mom and dad really, really well. 
just destroyed because the kids typically don't have real knowledge in how to to manage money. And many times the money is put with an advisor who sells a lot of products. And so all of a sudden you can go from a low cost, well diversified, globally diversified portfolio into an annuity that just paid that advisor eight, nine, 10% in a commission. So it is pretty disheartening to view this, this happening. Does it happen in every case? Of course not. We've worked with many, many children that are very appreciative. But I also find the more those kids were brought into the engagement while the parents were alive, the longer they had to understand and learn and assimilate the strategies and the higher probability that they would continue that after one parent has passed. So that that's something to pay a lot of attention to, especially if you are the child of parents that have a financial advisor talking to your parents and letting them know it's probably in their best interest if they start bringing you into these discussions and learning more about what's happening with the financial advisor and understanding the difference between commissions and fees and, and all of these nuances rather than be thrown into it all at once and then have what could be a very unfortunate outcome for the parents happening. So, Thanks. Thanks for listening. We didn't get into a lot of the, the emotions, of course, and the money scripts that are going on for the kids, but money scripts and trauma and woundedness is all playing into this morass of events and feelings that are coming up with between the kids and the parents. So I hope this was helpful and that you enjoyed it. And I will look forward to chatting with you again next week. Take care. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior, whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.